My name's Jason Espy. I'm an elder here, and it's my privilege uh, to serve here. And uh, we'll be reading in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 10 and going through uh, chapter 3, verse 3. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Verse 10 says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able yet, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? May God... Bless the reading of his word. So before we really dive in and get started, I just want to read another passage of scripture. Uh, one of the reasons why we do our scripture readings, I believe is 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Do not forsake the public reading of scripture. So that's why scripture reading in that form is part of our service every week. Um, but what I want to do is I just want to read a passage, just a real short passage of scripture, and then we will pray and then we'll just get into it. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1. I would encourage you just to flip there if you can. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing on display, we can notice, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Father, Open our eyes that we may observe wonderful things from thy law. May your spirit take your word, show it to us, reveal it to us, teach us all things. And Lord, may we set aside uh, the sin which so easily entangles us and let us just receive the truth of your word and how it applies to our life today. We lift up this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. If you, I would encourage you to go ahead and flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we'll really be going from verses 10 through chapter 3, verse 3. 
I'll kind of back up to some of the context earlier in chapter 2 and before, just kind of to set the stage. But today, what I want to talk to you about is the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination. But to let you know kind of what's coming up here at Calvary Bible Church, this is our last week in our series on bibliology. I'll explain why we decided to do this series in the month of January in just a moment. But next, next Sunday morning, we are beginning the book of Colossians. And to say that I'm like a kid on Christmas morning would be an understatement. I'm excited about doing the book of Colossians because in chapter 1, verse 13 alone, I quote this all the time, but just receive the truth that I'm about to share with you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. So that's what we're going to be talking about starting next week, and I'll probably spend about five years going through the book of Colossians, so I'll I'll be older after we get through it. But today we're finishing up our series on bibliology. It's really the systematic, fancy word for systematic theology and doctrine of what the Bible actually is. And every year we're going to set aside either January or February just to unpack systematic theology or doctrine. And the question is, you know, why in the world would Calvary Bible Church set aside one month every year just to talk about doctrine? Well, the reason is, is because of our mission. The mission of Calvary Bible Church is to what? To guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. So part of being a biblical follower of Christ is knowing and understanding what we believe. Amen. So what bibliology is, is really the systematic theology or the doctrine of the Bible. In other words, what does the Bible say about the Bible? But to be honest with you, systematic theology, that whole uh, title, that whole discussion just seemed really intimidating to me for the longest time. Anybody else just get intimidated by the word systematic theology? I mean, it was even after seminary, before I really realized that, wait a second, these theologians that write books like this thick, they put on their pants just like I do, just like everybody does. That all really systematic theology is, is understanding and studying the Bible topically. What does the Bible say about angels? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about salvation? And today, what does the Bible say about the Bible? Why do we believe the Bible is God's word? What proof do we have? How was the Bible put together? What is the Bible? How can we understand the Bible? Four weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration, really defining what? What is the Bible? What do we mean by that? The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblios, and the Bible, as we defined it, there's two different ways to define it, but the Bible is what? It is a collection of books written by God through men. Verbal plenary inspiration of scripture to reveal special revelation to reveal his character, his redemptive plan and instruction to help us know, love and follow him fully. That's what the Bible is. And if you didn't memorize that, I mean, but what else is the Bible? We could define it shorter. The Bible is what? The word of the living God. Amen. And then three weeks ago, we 
talked about the doctrine of canonization. How was the Bible put together? And the most important piece, the most important foundation of putting the Bible together throughout church history is found in John chapter 10, that his sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. We recognize the voice of the shepherd. The Bible was put together by recognizing, not selecting, and canonizing, we mean testing inspired books affirmed by the Bible's solidity, its unchangingness, and God's sovereignty. Okay, all that to be setting the stage this morning, so you know where we're going to go today. Okay, today I want to talk to you about the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination, what is that? How many of you have ever heard somebody say that the Bible is confusing, that it's too hard to understand, that it's mysterious, or that the Bible doesn't make sense? Why is that? Why do people find the Bible to be confusing? It's the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination is this. It is the Spirit's role in us understanding the Bible. It is the Spirit's role to help us understand the Bible. Another theologian defines it like this. The doctrine of illumination is that doctrine that describes the work of the Holy Spirit in helping the believer to understand God's Word. I, you know, okay, this is a very lofty doctrine. Often it's hard to really understand and put our teeth into So I thought all this week, how can I illustrate the doctrine of illumination? And the best illustration I came up with was the eye doctor. Okay. How many of you have ever been to the eye doctor before? Okay. What's that experience like? I I, I can ask you, what's that experience? If you're an eye doctor in the room, I'm sorry. (laughs) We're about to say some things. Okay, I don't think there's any eye doctors in the room. But anyways, what's what's the experience like going to an eye doctor? It's cold. Anybody remember how cold that room is? It's, It's damp for whatever reason in my mind. It's dark. It's a little stale and a little stuffy. Okay, and let's just be honest. The eye doctor is a really... Strange experience, okay? They escort you back into this dark room, and there you are by yourself with this person in a white coat. Anybody else tracking with me? And you can barely see. There's barely enough light in that room to even know where you're going. And then the eye doctor takes this gigantic contraption, and he puts it on your face. And that, how many faces have been on that thing? Anyways, I wonder how often they disinfect that thing. I'm just saying. Okay. And it's cold, and they put this on your face like this, and the eye doctor says, okay, which is better, one or two? And if you don't answer fast enough, he says, which one is better, one or two? And then he puts some letters 20 feet away, and he gets you to read them off, and you sit there, and what do you do? You get the top one most likely, and if you don't get the top one, then you really need you really need glasses. Okay, I'm just saying, I'm no eye doctor here. But and then you kind of work your way down the list, and then you get to kind of the bottom, and what do you begin to do? You begin to squint and 
kind of wrestle with what those letters are. You're convinced it's an E, but it's a B, and so forth and so on. And then after the weird experience is over, what does the doctor say to you? The doctor says, you need corrective glasses so you can actually see properly. So you leave that dark, damp, cold room alone with this person. Then you go to the section of the eye doctor and you pick out glasses. And the doctor is there. Why? The doctor is there to help you see correctly. But what is required for you to actually see well? You know, you could have the best eye doctor in the world. You can go to the eye doctor all the time. He can even prescribe you the perfect prescription for your eyes. But when you leave the office itself, what is absolutely required for you to see correctly? You must what? You must wear your glasses. So it is both and. You you need somebody to assist you, to come alongside you, to help you see the letters correctly, but then you also must have the discipline to wear the corrective eyeglasses. That is a overly simplistic view of the doctrine of illumination. Who is our eye doctor? Who helps us see the words of the Bible correctly? But let's add another question. What must we then do in order to read and understand and interpret the Bible the way that God originally intended? There is a both and relationship. So what we see, if you have your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 through 3, 3, we see the tension that we find in the doctrine of illumination. We see the role of the Spirit as our spiritual eye doctor, so to speak. But then we also see the requirements of our life in order to be able to see correctly. So if you have your Bible, today we're going to answer the question is this. The Bible is inspired and canonized. It is written by God through men, verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, and it is canonized. The word canonized means to rule or measure, to be tested. So we talked about these two last time. The Bible is inspired and canonized, and the question is really, now what? How can we understand the Scripture? So today my sermon is going to be in three parts. Part one is the Spirit's role, part two is our role, and part three is answering the question, so what? So today we'll begin in verse 10, but before we get started this morning, I realize that I have probably prepared too much this morning, so bear with me this morning. But I, as my mentor said, Pastor Gary, he said, any text, what, taken out of context is a pretext for what, for heresy or for error. So any passage we walk into, we must be mindful of the context of that specific passage. So... The passage we are in is in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. For those that know, uh, how would you describe the church in Corinth? (laughs) A mess? What else would you describe the church in Corinth? A mess, uh, a dumpster fire, we would put politely on it, okay? So Paul is addressing this church. It is, to put it mildly, it is a hot disaster. The church in Corinth is in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. 
The city of Corinth is 54 miles to the west of the hub of the wisdom of the ancient world, a city called Athens. So that is very important. So you have the city in Corinth and you have the city of Athens. And they are 54 miles apart across the isthmus of Corinth. So why is that important? We see when we enter into the epistle of 1 Corinthians, we see the influence of the ancient Greek philosophers, men like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Euripides, Aristophanes, all these guys that lived in Athens have influenced the church in Corinth. But then we also have to take into mind, so you have these really smart ancient philosophers and their influence in the city of Corinth. But then what is the city of Corinth itself? It is a working class city. It is a trade hub for shipping of the ancient world. So you have this, for lack of a better term, you have this melting pot. In the city of Corinth, you have these highly intelligent aristocrats, intellectuals mixed with this working class people. So then this church in Corinth kind of comes together in this collision course of highly intelligent people and working class people, and they converge. And what Paul does in the epistle to the Corinthians is he answers questions and addresses issues within the church. If you know this book, then you know it is very personal and very practical. It is, in many sense, juxtaposed to the book of Romans, which is theological and doctrinal. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Corinthians, Paul addresses divisions in the church. Chapter 5, what does Paul do? He calls out the church for allowing a man to fellowship with the body of Christ while he has relations with his stepmother. In chapter 6, Paul calls out the church for suing one another. In chapter 11, Paul calls out the church for getting drunk. Okay? I mean, it's just a mess. But what we see in this epistle, you see this practical, personal message given to the church in Corinth. But then we also see this deeply rich and theological treatise of the Spirit's relationship between us and the Word of God. So if you have your text, I want to back up to verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll just briefly begin with the more immediate context for our discussion. Notice verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet we do not speak wisdom... Why does he say that? It's because the city of Athens is 54 miles away. They are wrestling with the wisdom of the ancient Greek philosophers. Verse 6. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom into mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul is addressing the comparison between human wisdom and God's wisdom. But the question I have is what? What is he referring to with God's wisdom in verse 6 through 8? If you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul begins to talk about what God's wisdom is. The wisdom of God or God's wisdom is Christ crucified. 
So the wisdom of God that Paul refers to in chapter 2 is Christ crucified, is the gospel, which is what? Which is spelled out for us in God's word itself. But what's the question here? There's an underlying question we see in the church in Corinth in chapter 2. Why do all these smart people over in the city of Athens, these men, the city that had men like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these intelligent people, why can't they see that the Bible is true and that Christ crucified is the message of good news to the world? If they're so smart, why don't they actually see it? I mean, okay, how many of you have ever wondered or been uh, mystified that a lot of really smart people are completely clueless to the truth of the Bible. I mean, I've even known Christians that look at the Scripture, and I know that they have like 14 PhDs in rocket science, and then they look at the Bible, and I'm like, what are you even talking about? Am I tracking with me on that? Why do really smart people not understand the Scripture? Verse 10, which is where we will really begin today. This is God's work in the doctrine of illumination. It says this, For to us... God revealed them. What's the question we have here in verse 10? Who is the us and who is the them? For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I have a couple of questions here. First off, we see this word for, and the original language is not, not, the Greek conjunction gar, which is the, usually signals explanation, but it's actually the Greek conjunction day, which signals uh, contrast, it is what we would say, but, which contrasts the wisdom of human beings above and then God's wisdom. For, but to us. Wait a second. Wait, who is he talking to? If you notice in your text, for, to us. He is speaking to what? To Christians. To those who are believers in Jesus Christ, right? So for, to us. God revealed them. The second question I have is, what is them? It is the wisdom of God. Go back to chapter 1. As we've already mentioned, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. So for to us, God revealed Christ crucified through the Spirit. The mechanism to reveal it is through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Point number one is this, understanding the Bible is an illuminating work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God gave us the Word of God and also helps us to understand the Word of God. But why is the Bible essential to understand the Word of God? Verse 11 of chapter 2 says this, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him. What is he saying here? Verse 12. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we... Wait. Let me back up. Now we have received not the spirit of the world... But the Spirit who is from God, notice here what it says, so that for the purpose or result, I believe in the original language, it's probably a henna clause, so that for the purpose or result that we may know. 
The Greek word there, I believe, is gnosko. It's intimate knowledge so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So wait a second. God sent forth his spirit to us for a lot of reasons. We'll talk about it here in just a moment. But one of them is so that we could know the things freely given to us by God. So what is the work of the spirit in illumination? If you have your notes, the spirit provides for us the very words of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, not by those guys in Athens that everybody looks up to in the city of Corinth, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. Have you ever wondered why a particular passage doesn't make sense? Have you ever opened your Bible and just struggled to understand anything on the page? I think that tells a couple different things. It could be something on us that we might not be wearing our corrective lenses, but it also, listen, listen, if you constantly pick up the Bible and it fails to make sense, then maybe something deeper is going on. Maybe you don't have the Spirit of God within you to teach you all things. What is the work of the Spirit and illumination He provided to us? He helps us make sense of the Word so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Okay, so wait a second. What is, what is the Spirit's role in our life? Not only did God the Father give us the Spirit to seal us, not only did the Spirit give us a spiritual gift so we could serve and be part of the body of Christ, not only was the Spirit given to us so we could access the Father, not only did God give us the Spirit so we could walk by the Spirit, but God gave us the Spirit of God to help us make sense of the Bible. John chapter 14, verse 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Without the Spirit of God, we are limited in our ability to understand the things of God. Like an eye doctor. You know, when you walk into the eye doctor, you can see something, right? I mean, you can probably see light and darkness, you can probably see things that are blurry at a distance. But until you go to the eye doctor to get your exact prescription, you cannot see things clearly. It's the same with, the, same with those that are natural men. We'll see in verse 14 of chapter 2. Natural men can see certain things about the Bible, right? Have you ever known a scientist that actually begins to understand something about the Bible? They can see something, but they will not see things clearly without the Spirit of God. Um, one time I was... In my grow group here at Calvary, and it was some 20 years ago, and I was, I had a mane full of hair. I talk about that thing often. Maybe I just need to grieve that thing on my head. Um, man, that thing was beautiful. Um, <laughs> and it blinded me, okay? It allowed me not to see. Um, 
But one time I was sitting in this grow group with a uh, bunch of teenage guys, and we were talking, you know, about a, a simple passage of Scripture. I mean, this is not Second Peter chapter 1. I mean, this is like John chapter 3, verse 16, okay? It's like pretty plain as day, at least I thought. So I'm sitting there with this young man, and I'll just call him Jimmy, okay? His name wasn't Jimmy, but just to protect the guilty here, okay? His name was Jimmy, and I'm sitting there talking to Jimmy about this passage of Scripture that is just, I mean, plain as day. And I asked this Jimmy kid, I said, hey, Jimmy, what do you think this means? And he looked at me like sideways, and he said, I have no idea. And I just kind of uh, put pause on the whole discussion. And I said, it was a, this kid does not have the spirit of God living within him, teaching him all things. Because if he can't see even the simple things of scripture, it tells me that the spirit of God probably is not living within him. So I literally just, I just, I remember this to this day, some 20 years later, I just took a time out and I said, okay. Let me lead you to Christ. And I remember sitting there with Jimmy and just praying with him and leading him to Christ so that he could not only be saved but understand the spiritual things in life. If you cannot make sense of the Bible, maybe we don't have the Spirit of God within us. Can I just speak? I say this a lot. Um, but I think churches are filled with people that think they are saved, but they are not. Understanding the Bible is an illuminating work of the Spirit. But if you notice in verse 10, Paul takes it a step further. Not only is the Spirit's illuminating work in the, the Word of God is his illuminating work of the Spirit, but in verse 14, Paul takes it a step further. Not only can natural man not understand it, but verse 14, but a natural man does not accept. This word does not is a middle voice, which means he does the action to himself or for his own benefit. So the natural man cannot in and of itself accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Anybody else ever talk to a non-believer and they say that the Bible just seems like complete foolishness to them? Anybody else relate to that one? Verse 15. And he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritual the truths of the Bible were written by the Spirit of God through men, and they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by none. For whom has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what is the work of the Spirit in illumination? He provided the Word. He helps us to make sense of the Word. And without the Spirit of God, the Word is Foolishness. It's foolishness. Which is true. For the longest time, I struggled to watch documentaries of science and things like that that would be juxtaposed to the truth of the Bible that I understand. But as I've matured in my faith, I can watch documentaries and things that might disagree with my faith with a grain of salt. I don't watch those too often because I usually like history documentaries like Ken Burns. Anyways, moving on. But anytime I read a science or watch a science documentary, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. Why? Listen, we should not 
be surprised when the world disagrees with the truth of the scripture. We should not be surprised when, the word, when people in the word think that the Bible is foolishness. Paul states it right here. And what are they thinking in the church of Corinth? They were saying, wait a second, there's a lot of really smart people 54 miles away in Coleman, Alabama that think that the Bible and the things of the Spirit of God are complete foolishness. And Paul says, hey man, don't be surprised. They are natural, unregenerated men and women. In order to understand spiritual things, they must have the Spirit of God working within them. Okay, understanding the Bible is an illuminating work of the Spirit. But what? Go back to the eye doctor illustration with me. When you leave the eye doctor, you can have the best eye doctor in the world. He can prescribe the perfect lenses for you. They can be so comfortable. They can give you even contacts. And you can, you know, you can have it all. And you can still be what? Blind as a bat. Okay? What must you do as a person in order to see correctly? You must have the discipline to put on the corrective eyeglasses that the doctor gave you. True or false, understanding the Bible is a two-sided relationship. Let me ask you the question. Can you have a wonderful, healthy marriage if only the wife tries? Can you have a wonderful, healthy marriage if only the husband tries? There is this mysterious relationship between us and the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Notice with me in chapter 3, verse 1, this is where Paul begins to talk about our role. The Spirit of God, which knows the mind of the Father, has given, us this, has given us the words of God, and He is inside of you, indwelling you to make sense of all things. But, there is a role that I must play. And I, Paul, okay, chapter 3, verse 1, and I, Paul, Brethren, I want you to notice this with me. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I encourage you to highlight that word. Why do I say that? Who is he talking to? Brethren, what does he mean by that? Brothers or sisters, people who are part of the family of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ, that understand the wisdom of the Lord, Christ crucified. He's talking to other Christians. And I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you. Ouch. Ouch. As to spiritual men. That would sting. Okay. That would sting if I got that from Paul. Amen. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh. Not men of the spirit, but men of the flesh. As to infants in Christ. So I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, when I came to you all those years ago, I could not talk to you about the deeper things of the Lord because you were all spiritual babies, Christian infants. And even now, years later, you still haven't progressed in your walk with God. Indeed, even now. Why does he know that to be true? Because of all of the problems in the church of Corinth. Even now, you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you. Wait a second. What does he describe as fleshly? 
for explanation for your still fleshly for since there is jealousy and strife the sign of an infant christian in part is the sign of the flesh listed by jealousy and strife conflict within the church and an envious desire to be like other people are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Paul could not give them milk to drink because of their spiritual maturity. The sign, okay, how many of you, okay, how many of you have, are parents of little children in the room? Okay. What defines an infant? What defines a baby? Okay? Not only are they small, but what else? They can only think about their fleshly needs. Amen? My, my four-year-old, Olivia, Lord love her. I love her to death. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and an 18-month-old. Whenever they have a problem, what is it always about? Okay? It's always about their desire or to have food in their belly. Anybody else relate to that? Those things suck down food like crazy. It's, it's insane. How much they eat. There's these little bitty packages and they just eat like crazy. Okay, so they're consumed by their belly. They're consumed by their flesh, by what they want. And what else defines an immature infant? They really can't set themselves aside to care for another person or they struggle to do it. That's the sign of immaturity in the Christian walk. Do we seek the things of the spirit or the things of the flesh? And can we set ourselves aside in our desires to selflessly love other people? Understanding the Bible is an intentional work of self to be holy, dependent, and diligent. So it's both in, right? And to interpret the scripture as we talk about what is the Bible, how was the Bible put together a few weeks ago, and then today, how can we understand the Bible? Understanding the Bible is an intentional work of self to be holy, set apart, not seeking out the deeds and the desires of the flesh, dependent upon the spirit and diligent to study the Bible itself. What are the deeds of the flesh? Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. So wait a second. There is both and. If you want to understand and apply the word of God, there is a spirit of God that has come to teach you all things, but then we also must make a decision not to be infants in Christ. To set aside the desires of the flesh and to be mature. The sign of spiritual maturity is what? Is love is the ability to set your needs aside and minister to other people. Can I just speak for just a second? Um, A sign of immaturity is looking at all the faults of other people and foregoing your own. The 
For the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruits of the flesh are strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. So the question I would like to leave you with today, this is really the theological treatise of the doctrine of illumination, and it's good information and all, but let's just answer the question, so what? I mean, how do we take the doctrine of illumination and help it apply it to our life? How does the doctrine shape our life? Number one, the doctrine of illumination reminds me to live a holy life. Can I just speak to you? Your sin is forgiven on the cross, but your sin still has effects on your life. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7? It says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Why? So that your prayers would not be hindered. Your sin, your strife, the jealousy that you struggle with has effect on... Got a bunch of kids. Hey. Hi, guys. <laughs> okay. It's really distracting. we got like 20 kids up there. Okay. I guess they're here for the baptism. They're not here to hear me preach? I mean, come on. Um, anyways. So what? The doctrine of illumination reminds me of the importance of living a holy life. That sin actually matters. That setting aside our flesh and walking by the Spirit Bearing fruit of the Spirit is love. It actually has an effect on our lives. Number two is this, is to be dependent or listen to the Spirit. And number three is to look in and to live the Word. To listen to the Spirit, John fourteen twenty six is a good passage of Scripture to talk about that. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. And then number three, our role is to look in and live by the Spirit. I, you know, hang on a second. I'm just going to pick on preachers for just a second because I am one. I've heard a lot of preachers be use this kind of as a crutch that I don't need, I don't need to prepare. Why? Because I have the Spirit of God within me. But what? Wait. Yes, that is true. But what does it say in James 1.25? But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Would you agree or disagree with this statement? That you are designed, that you are destined to have an intimate relationship with the Lord. That God has designed you, God has created you for you to know Him and have a relationship with Him. He has already made provisions through the cross and through His Spirit to help us understand the things of truth and the Word of God. So then we must make a conscience choice to put on the eyeglasses of the Spirit of God to live holy lives, lives void of sin as much as we can. And let's just all be honest here. We all struggle with sin. Can I get an amen to that one? We all, we all struggle with the deeds of the flesh. What? Wait, let's go back in my notes to Galatians chapter 
5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of y'all struggle with those on occasion? Okay? All of us. We never arrive spiritually. But let us not use that as an excuse not to pursue personal sanctification. Can I just speak for just a second? We, um, we like to blame our problems on other people. Can I get an amen to that one? They, okay, hang on. We like to blame our problems on other people. Amen? Okay, thank you. We like to blame our problems on other people. Amen? Thank you. There we go. Okay, we're back. We're tracking with me. Okay. As, but, but really, 99% of our problems begin with the person in the mirror. The choices that I make, the sin that I pursue, the spirit of God that I do or do not listen to, that the vast majority of our problems are not from other people. It's not from our husband or not from our boss or not from our parents and how they messed us up. Okay, It is from the person in the mirror and the decisions that we make every day. As Dave Ramsey says, if I can get a hold of that guy in the mirror, I can be rich and skinny, okay? And we can be godly. Let us not pawn off our sin and our struggles onto other people, but let us take responsibility for our own mistakes. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, this sermon today, when I was preparing this, when I was talking about the doctrine of illumination and, and the, the role we play in it, it was just a mirror to my own life, and it should be to all of us. I don't shine the mirror in your face to talk about how you're failing. I, I know we all fail, okay? Okay, it's just part of life. We all struggle with fits of the flesh. But we have a loving God that has paid for our sin in full. And we have a loving Heavenly Father that desires for us to come before Him and to confess our sins to one another, and, or confess our sins to Him, and that we will be forgiven. Understanding the Bible is an illuminating work of the Spirit, but it's also an intentional work of self to be holy, dependent, and diligent to understand and to apply the Word of God. That is the doctrine of illumination. And that's what we see in the Scripture. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. I, before I go on, Lord, I just pray for not us as a church. I pray for us as individuals, as Christians. Lord, may we examine today our hearts. And Lord, may we repent of the sin which so easily entangles us. Lord, we are reminded in your truth to be mature and to not be fleshly and to desire the deeper things of your spirit. And Lord, I just pray that we would not let the desires of the flesh get in our way of our own spiritual maturity, but Lord, that we would set them aside and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Forgive us of our many faults. May we come to you because we know that you are a loving Father that has given us good things. 
Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that do not have the Spirit of God living inside them to make sense of the word of the Lord, that you would open their eyes to the truth, that you would take off spiritual blinders, and that they would decide to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. We thank you for the blood that you shed on the cross and how it reconciles us to the Father. And may we just appreciate and believe in it. In Jesus' name, amen.